Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we launched during this work from home period with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're really trying to do during these SALT Talks is replicate the experience that we provide at our global SALT conferences. And that's to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as to provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome a speaker from our last SALT conference in SALT Abu Dhabi in 2019, and a le leading Israeli entrepreneur, Jonathan Medved, to SALT Talks. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, John is a serial entrepreneur, and according to the Washington Post, he's one of Israel's leading high-tech venture capitalists. In 2008, the New York Times supplement, Israel at 60, uh, named Medved as one of the top 10 most influential Americans who have impacted Israel. Uh, Medved is the founder and CEO of Our Crowd, which is a leading global equity crowdfunding platform for accredited investors and angel investors. Our Crowd has 1.4 billion in commitments and has made investments in 200 companies and funds and made 30 exits since its launch in February of 2013. Our Crowd exits have included Jump Bikes, which was sold to Uber, Briefcam, which was sold to Canon, Argus, which was sold to Continental, Crosswise, which was sold to Oracle, and Replay, which was sold to Intel. Bloomberg Businessweek said in May, on May 7th of 2015, that Our Crowd is hands down the most successful equity crowdfunding platform in the world right now. TheStreet.com described Our Crowd as crowdfunding for real investors. Prior to uh, starting Our Crowd, uh, Jonathan was the co-founder and CEO of Vringo and the co-founder and general partner of Israel Seed Partners with $262 million under management. And I know it's a great source of pride for us. I refer to the fact that Jonathan spoke at our SALT Abu Dhabi conference in December of 2019. That was well before the Abrahamic Accords uh, were announced, uh, the, the peace deal, if you will, between Israel and Bahrain and the UAE. And we were very proud to have brought Jonathan into the UAE to speak at our conference and start building uh, those bilateral commercial relations, which have resulted in now diplomatic relations. And we're very excited to, to help Jonathan and our crowd build on that success. And, and given his open-mindedness and his commercial instincts, he has already been one of the first Israelis to uh, build business ties into the UAE. So again, we're very proud of help facilitating that. And we're also very proud to have Jonathan on to talk more about that. A reminder, if you have any questions for John during today's SALT talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. And hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. Uh, John, thank you. And Jonathan, it's a, it's a great pleasure to have you on uh, SALT talk. The, uh, the only bad thing about all this, I was hoping to see you in Abu Dhabi in December, but unfortunately, um, or we've got that on hold. Uh, obviously, we want everybody to be safe and healthy, and uh, we promise everybody we will be back in the region once we're all very confident that those two things can be achieved. Um, but before we get into the Abraham Accords and your amazing business, I want to go into your background. I ask every one of our guests sort of the same question. Uh, tell us something about yourself that led you to the journey of starting our crowd and where you are today. Thank you, uh, Anthony. It's great to be back with you and uh, 
hopefully we'll be in person with you, either at SALT in the, uh, in the US or back in Abu Dhabi. Uh, maybe someday Israel, you never know. Um, well, I, I, I tried to get to Israel twice a year until this whole thing happened. And so uh, we'll definitely take you up on that as well. Cool. Um, I grew up in California in a pretty typical uh, American Jewish family. I went to public school, grew up as a product of the 60s and 70s, went up to Berkeley. And uh, things sort of changed a bit when I uh, finished my freshman year at Cal and I wanted to go abroad. And I asked my parents, you know, like any normal Jewish kid, where will you pay for me to go get some seasoning? And they said, uh, Israel. <laughs> so off I went. I fell in love with the place, uh, ended up learning Hebrew, visiting several times, and uh, have been living in Israel for over 40 years. Now, uh, I was really lucky to get involved in technology from a very early date uh, through another Jewish tradition called nepotism. Uh, my late father, Dr. David Medved, was a pioneer in fiber optic communications, and I joined the family business. Turns out that I uh, had a liking for tech and uh, helped him raise money. And we ultimately sold that company to the Amoco Corporation. And that was my first exit. Then uh, three or four companies later, uh, all of them either successfully sold or taken public uh, in New York, either on NASDAQ uh, or on uh, the New York Stock Exchange, uh, built a venture capital fund and in 2013 started R-Crowd. And the idea behind R-Crowd was to open up access to the venture capital asset class to the broad range of uh, investors who sort of watch venture capital from afar and say, wow, that's great, but may or may not have had the five or $10 million available for a limited uh, partner's check or didn't understand the uh, sort of esoteric nature of a VC term sheet. And we started it. And now, seven years later, we're about a billion and a half in assets, as you spoke about, 60,000 investors worldwide, and an increasing number of institutions who are investing in our large and successful portfolio. So that's my story. Well, listen, I love, I love the story. I want to jump right over. We're going to talk about venture capital in a second, but I want to jump right over to the Abraham Accords. Uh, so for people that don't know what that actually means, and you know, some of us are super focused on the news like you and me, and some of us are focused on finance. Um, what are the Abraham Accords? And what does it mean to the state of Israel? What does it mean to the Emiratis, the Bahrainis? Uh, what does it mean for the region? And what does it mean for your business or crowd? So first of all, it's, it's mistakenly called a peace deal. And it's not a peace deal because we never were at war with the Emiratis or the Bahrainis. Um, we never had you know, uh, a normal relationship. So it's really a normalization set of, uh, of deals that now establish full relationships. Uh, to give you an idea, I, I was just in Dubai uh, last week and it took me 20 hours to travel there each way. I had to fly from Tel Aviv to Zurich hang out at the airport for five or six hours, then Zurich back to Dubai. It's a nightmare. And on the way back, I had to go via Frankfurt. As of January, there will be 112 direct flights between Israel and the Emirates. 112 weekly. 
Okay, that it's a three-hour flight. What it changes is the sounds whole... like some pent-up demand, though, huh, Jonathan? It sounds like <laughs> uh, it sounds like long-lost brothers and sisters trying to get reconnected, right? Yeah, well, big time. I was talking today to Emirati, and I said, you know, do you think we can use these 112 flights? And he said, are you kidding? We're going to need more because uh, everybody he knows wants to come to Israel, and everybody I know wants to go uh, that way. So it's not just about business. It's about basically taking away the sand equivalent of the uh, Berlin Wall, right? There was this artificial divider between, in the heart of the world, right? In other words, if you look at the map, you'll see that Israel and the Gulf are connected by a land bridge, which really is the middle of the world. And there was a division there, which was artificial, was because of politics or mistrust. It's now open. And this is going to cause huge business. I was on CNBC last week. I described it as a $10 billion near-term opportunity. That was before the three governments, US, UAE, and Israel just announced a $3 billion fund. So somebody smart who I know said, Medved, you missed it. You missed a zero. It's more like a $100 billion opportunity. What's interesting is the rest of the world is playing a role. And I was on a call last week with a group of Japanese businessmen. All they wanted to talk about was were these accords and what do they mean for world trade? So it really is one of these things which is much needed good news in today's difficult environment and really going to change things in a big way. Yeah, you know, the decision to come to the SALT conference. So, I mean, you, you sort of made history coming to the SALT conference in Abu Dhabi um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were the first Israeli business person to speak at a large event in the United Arab Emirates. Is that true? That, I'm, that, that is completely true, and thanks to you. And well, I yeah, no, I'm not, I, I, I appreciate that. I'm not looking for the credit for it, but I, I, <laughs> but I no, appreciate but you true. accepting my. I appreciate you accepting our invitation, but, but what what went into that for you? Look, I, it was a a dream come true. I've been doing business in the Gulf, sort of under the radar for uh, 12 years already. In 2008, I had a startup called Vringo, which was in the mobile content uh, video sharing business. And our first big customer was a uh, UAE operator called Eti Salat. And we uh, established a really great business with them, uh, so good that we took our company public in 2010. And then as we were filing our S1, the SEC said, why are you leaving out this stuff about Etty Salat, you know, in your prospectus? And I said, well, for obvious reasons, I don't want to get them in trouble. We're from Israel. You know, these connections are sort of quiet. Uh, I think the New York Times call it the worst kept secret in the Middle East, the connections between Israel and the UAE before the normalization. But the SEC said, sorry, buddy, you got you to, gotta, you know, disclose it. And what was amazing was how cool our partners were in the Gulf. So, you know, I've seen this going on below the surface. And as and I just felt back in 2019 when you invited me that things were ripe for a change. Okay. That it was not just that your conference was being sponsored by, by Mubadala and, and you know serious people down there, but they were ready to hear about Israel. They were ready to talk openly. And this was already, I think, a, a signaling of the winds of change afoot back uh, a year ago. 
All right, so let's let's segue. I mean, all that is fantastic, and obviously, you know, one of the goals of the SAW conference was to create those types of synergies. And I always tell people, I want people to have uh, uh, opportunities to meet people that can help them with their business. Hopefully, we can learn something from each other. And lastly, and this was uh, something I said to all the guys at Mubadala and uh, ADGM, I'm there to have fun. Okay, other people want to be boring and dry. I'm sorry. I grew up on Long Island. That's not what we're about. Okay. So I'm there to have fun. And so uh, hopefully it was a combination of those things, but let's talk about our crowd for a second. Uh, what, what, what are we uh, doing at our crowd? Why is it called our crowd? I think that's a fascinating connection into your business plan. Explain your business plan to people, explain where you want to go directionally with the business. So look, the, the idea is that venture capital should be in everybody's portfolio. The problem is, it's not only in uh, not present in 99% of accredited investors in America, they estimate about 14 million accredited households in America and less than 1% have a venture capital commitment, um, which means a lot of people are simply sitting on the sidelines. Now that didn't really matter 30 and 40 years ago when people went public early, right? Companies like Microsoft and Amazon and others went public at sub-billion dollar valuations. You held on to these things for 20, 30 years, like uh, you know, the way that people like Warren Buffett recommend. You made 500, 1,000 times your money. That's great. Today, these private companies stay private much longer. When they finally go public, most of the money has been made by smart investors in the private markets. And those are venture capitalists and private equity people who are doing you know, growth. And the reality is that it's a shame. And it's really hard to watch this sort of inequality, this lack of democratization. You know, uh, Jay Clayton at the SEC has been talking about this you know, quite insistently, that given the fact that we've reduced the number of public listings by half, right? In other words, there are companies simply are not now, you know, we have the SPAC phenomenon and whatnot, but still companies aren't going public the way they used to. Um, you got to give some kind of a chance for everybody else to get in. But it's not just, by the way, the individual high net worth in, investor or the family office, it's the institution. I mean, most institutions look at Yale University with envy. The Yale endowment now is targeting, I think it's 23% of their endowment in VC this year. That's extraordinary. So I don't know how many of our listeners now are institutions. Do a gut check, guys. Ask yourselves how much of your you know, corpus is committed to VC. And I'll, I'll be shocked if a bunch of them can get to two or 3%. It's simply too hard. The venture funds are too small. It's too esoteric. You gotta be sort of a, a known guy out in the valley. And so that's why we set up our crowd. And the first way we solved the problem was to provide access to the world's second Silicon Valley, which is Israel. So a big part of our growth story has been the growth in Israel over the last decade. When we started back in 2013, there was about $2 billion being invested annually in Israeli venture capital-backed uh, companies. This year will be over $10 billion. So there's been a fourfold growth, which is extraordinary for an ecosystem over this period of time. And uh, we've got now 60,000 uh, accredited investors and you know close to 500 
institutions and family offices who are now on our platform and accessing our investments every week. We're doing about 100 deals a year where you can pick your own deal or you can pick a fund. And we have a, a family of 22 funds at the moment. So first of all, congratulations on all that. It's, uh, it's fantastic. We'll talk about your pandemic fund in a second, but I want to ask you something about Israel. Um, about 10 years ago, uh, Dan Sinor is a friend of mine. He wrote a book uh, called Startup Nation. Um, when I visited Tel Aviv, uh, I think in 2015, I had an opportunity to visit some of the incubation venture capital laboratories, some of the things that is the Israelis were working on related to cybersecurity, cyber theft, uh, protection of people's digital assets, et cetera. For people on this uh, Zoom call that don't know a lot about Israel and a lot about what's going on in venture capital there, uh, I was told, and I'm assuming it's still true, that there are more venture capital investments being made in Israel or from Israel than all of Western Europe. Um, I'm assuming that's still true. And if it is, tell us, tell us about the progress that the Israelis are making in the world of venture capital. So, you know, it's, it's, it's roughly true. It depends whether you're counting the UK or not, or, you know, you stop in Germany and go farther east. But the reality is that there are about 7,000 uh, Israeli venture-backed companies. There are hundreds of venture funds. All of the major venture investors from Silicon Valley put money into the Israeli ecosystem. And what makes it unique is that $10 billion I referred to, about 90% comes from overseas. So while there are you know, significant uh, capital pools in Israel, most of this is people literally uh, in the past coming physically to make those investments, today doing it all on Zoom. We're up, by the way, this year in Israel from 8 billion to 10 billion in the time of the COVID pandemic, which is unreal. What makes Israel uh, so interesting is a couple of things. Number one, the big source of this technology, other than sort of a mindset and a culture which asks a lot of questions, which breaks a lot of rules, which dreams a lot. I mean, the, you know, I've got a good friend, Muli Eden from Intel, says the way to motivate an Israeli R&D team is tell them that what they're trying to do is that it's impossible. I mean, that's probably the most important part of this phenomena. But on top of it, you have about 400 multinational corporations who are located in Israel doing R&D and increasingly providing exits to our companies you have free trade agreements with Europe, increasing ties with Asia, and this unbelievably core relationship with the US, and a very strong sort of cultural and technology affinity with Silicon Valley, where there are probably about 100,000 Israeli expats. So deeply you know, embedded in the uh, American tech ecosystem that some of these M&A transactions where a big American tech company buying an Israeli company, they're negotiating in Hebrew because the, the guy working for, you know, Google, Facebook, whatever in the Valley is speaking Hebrew to his cousin or his old brother-in-law or whatever it is, you know, back in, in Tel Aviv. The ecosystem in Israel is very broadly distributed according to sectors. And uh, you'll see everything from cybersecurity to food tech, ag tech, the cloud, e-commerce, mobility now, uh, drones, uh, you name it. And uh, what's really interesting is we're starting to scale companies up. Used to be that we would sell them, uh, I think on the cheap, but for a couple hundred million dollars, 
and call it a day. Today, if you're not selling your company as a billion dollar plus exit, you're not making the press. And it turns out that Israel now has between 40 and 50 unicorns. That is, you know, private companies that are now worth a billion dollars. The big exits were Mobileye in the mobility area to Intel for 15 billion and a bunch of great stuff going on, uh, including in our platform. We have several that, uh, you know, we, we just had a company called Lemonade, and an insure tech company went public with probably the best debut of an IPO this year uh, in New York. And uh, that's an Israeli company that went, you know, three years to three billion in value, you know, uh, very, very quickly. I have a friend of mine who uh, you may know, Michael Oren, uh, who obviously uh, uh, is a senior I went to college with his ex-wife. And by the way, Dan Senor and I go way, way back. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't have to bring up ex-wives on the Zoom call, though. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, come on. I mean, John, hit the, uh, you got to have a five minute, you have a five second delay when Medved's talking. No. Right? <laughs> you can't bring up the ex-wives on the Zoom call, okay? You know, one of the stage lights is going to come down and hit you in the head, okay? I, yeah. I love Michael. Michael's a regular guest in my life. But I'm just saying, I mean, Jesus, I was coming up with a really good question. And then you bring up the ex-wife, the poor guy, right? All right, well. And the poor woman. All right. But anyway, so uh, uh, he wrote a book a few years back, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, called Power, Faith and Fantasy. I don't know if you've read the book, yes. uh, but it talked about where things are in the Middle East, where they are for Israel, what America's relationship is like for Israel. Where do you see America's relationship with Israel today and where would you like it to be over the next five or 10 years? Well, I think that the American-Israel relationship has never been better, and yet it's not a question of one, you know, uh, party or one administration. It's always been that way, really, from the time of Harry Truman, who, God bless him, you know, recognized Israel uh, at, at, a, at a moment when it wasn't even sure that we would survive. Right, that we were being attacked on all sides. Uh, it was an experiment, and Harry Truman said, "This is the right thing to do." and recognize the new Jewish state. Since then, uh, our relationship with the US has been sort of bedrock. And it's not just based on you know defense needs or common intelligence sharing, uh, but it's about values, about the fact that we're both democracies, the fact that we're both uh, about you know, a liberal outlook on life, uh, about uh, you know, capitalism, about you know, creativity. And uh, it really, runs the gamut, you know, with culture and religion and families and the American-Israel relationship is unbelievable. Where it's going to go is continue to be uh, driving shared economic benefit. And what's remarkable is how many big American corporations are now uh, taking advantage of Israel as sort of their idea factory. Israel's really good at ideation, creating new ideas out of nothing. And whether it's you know the tech companies or even you know companies like John Deere or big automotive companies, they all realize that they need to be in Israel. So that's why there are 400 multinationals, mostly uh, American companies, who are there. But what makes Israel so interesting today is that these set of special relationships are really now spreading around the world. So Israel is trying to dance at two weddings at the same time increasing relationship with Asia, in particular with uh, Japan, Korea, and China. Uh, Singapore has been a long-term uh, friend. Israel's biggest trading partner, uh, 
continues to be Europe, which is, you know, in our backyard. And despite, you know, some political ups and downs in that relationship, the, the trade business is very significant. But what Israel and America share is this entrepreneurship sort of leadership in the world. And there really is nowhere else for startup investing in companies like Silicon Valley and like Israel. They're, that's, uh, you know, they're both unique in terms of the way the world uh, works. So before I, before I turn it over to John, Jonathan, let me ask you about your uh, pandemic fund. Um, I just started it. It's a pandemic. It's called the Pandemic Innovation Fund. It's a slightly different uh, business idea from your other aspects of your business model. Tell us about that. Tell us how it's going. Tell us what you'd like to see for it over the next three to five years. So look, I, I think that what's remarkable about this very special and challenging time we're living in is the uh, sort of the tale of two cities aspect to it. Because there are a lot of people who are suffering. There's a lot of terrible unemployment. Many traditional businesses have been you know, uh, belly punched and are reeling. But on the other hand, the digital economy is booming. And you can see it you know, in the price of the FANG stocks. You can see it you know, in what's going on with startups. But if you are empowering everything from work from home or uh, if you're empowering uh, telemedicine or if you're empowering diagnostic testing or remote education, your business is on fire, doing really, really well. So we decided to set up a, a fund that would focus on both the medical aspects of the pandemic that frankly had been underinvested, whether it's diagnostic testing or you know, tracking and tracing or vaccines or uh, prevention, we were uh, committed to that, but also investing in what we call the new normal. So uh, we, know we put together this relatively modest $100 million fund uh, and we're you know, still early days and putting it together and raising it, but we're investing in a bunch of really interesting companies, including uh, one of the leading candidates in Israel for the vaccine. This one happens to be an, an oral vaccine which is very important given some of the issues in storage and logistics to get some of the more uh, esoteric vaccines out to the world. Uh, if you look at what happened with polio, you know, the first vaccine was a shot and then you know, the, uh, the Sabin uh, vaccine, which was oral, was the one that really took the day. So we're hoping that that'll be, uh, that company's called MIGVAX. We're hoping that will be uh, a winner. And uh, a whole bunch of other companies that are doing everything from robotic process automation to uh, distance learning, uh, cybersecurity, which is becoming a, a huge part of the work from home, uh, you know, conundrum, et cetera. All right, well, with that, I'm gonna turn it over to John Darcy. We've got a ton of uh, audience participation here. Jo Jonathan, congratulations on everything that you're doing. And uh, it's an awesome story. And I hope that Skybridge and Salt and all of us can uh, be together soon and help help grow that story. Thank you, Anthony. Yeah, Jonathan, we have a lot of audience questions, so looking forward to getting into these. The first one, going back to the Our Crowd platform, you talked about how your goal is really to democratize access to the type of venture capital opportunities that typically are only available to large investors with high minimums. What is the minimum for an investor on Our Crowd, and what's the process like for them to be onboarded you know, to verify their accreditation and for them to ultimately invest in deals on your platform? That's great. So first of all, it's an accredited investor platform. So you got to meet those criteria. 
in the US, where I imagine most of your listeners are, this is a million dollar net worth test outside of your primary uh, dwelling or a $200,000 annual income test. And again, there are about 14 million households that meet that. Uh, we have a pretty uh, frictionless uh, onboarding process where we use a third party vendor who uh, uh, you know, qualifies that. We use something called 506C, which is a new part of the Reg D regulations that allow us to actually do public solicitation. So in order to do that, we do have to uh, get more than just a self attestation to your accredited status. We do that pretty quickly, but it's pretty much about a you know a one day process, and you're up and running, uh, and you're on the platform. And again, we have about sixty thousand uh, uh, registered investors at the moment. I'd like it to be six hundred or six million someday, or sixty million. We'll we'll get there. Um, but the uh, uh, once you're on, then every week you're going to see several opportunities, and you're going to get this information by email and be invited to go to our website, uh, either through your mobile phone or through your desktop. Um, we actually post a lot of information about the company and the investment opportunity, including the company's uh, deck, as well as an analysis written by our team, because we put our own money in as any GP does. I mean, we're not a, a crowdfunding platform in the traditional sense where you know we're, uh, companies are paying us to slot them and then we're getting you know, uh, a commission from the companies. We're principal investors, right? We're venture capitalists. So we're putting GP money in. Each of the investments is approved by our investment committee. It's been fully diligenced. And then, uh, you know, once we, we do that, we share that information with the crowd. We actually lead the majority of our investments. We sit on company boards, and then we open these investments up to the crowd. The minimum investment in a, a single company deal is $10,000 per deal. And the minimum investment in a venture fund is 50,000. So it's quite accessible and quite democratic. I mean, you know, let's face it, most of the venture funds you wanna be in, their minimums are like $5 million. So to bring it down to 50,000, we think is, you know, gonna uh, change the way that access is done. Uh, and uh, I noticed there was another question that someone had asked about benchmarking. We're very, very obsessed with uh, performance. And we are benchmarking ourselves against, you know, uh, Cambridge and all the other uh, uh, metrics that are that are watching people's performance. We have uh, uh, good performance for some of our portfolio funds. We have a, a fund called OC50, which actually takes your $50,000 investment and then divides it into 50 individual bite sizes for approximately $1,000. And so you get a very hyper-diversified portfolio of venture companies, very, very interesting in its construction. All of these companies that we're doing diligence on, on the platform in any event. And that's, uh, you know, we're now in the getting ready to launch uh, series four of that fund. It's an evergreen fund that we continually make available on our platform. And uh, performance has been running, depending upon which iteration, in the healthy double digit uh, IRR net after fees. So we're, we're, we're quite happy with that. In terms of companies that are on your platform, uh, in terms of the deal pipeline, is there a geographic focus? Are you focused on Israeli uh, or Jewish entrepreneurs, or is it a global fund? What is the makeup geographically of, of the types of companies you have on the platform? Well, for, there's absolutely no religious or ethnic uh, focus at all. 
there is a slight geographic preference simply because we live in Israel and we're headquartered there. We now have 13 offices around the world, ranging from uh, Sydney, Australia, to Hong Kong, to Singapore, to London, to Madrid, uh, down in uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and uh, our newest, of course, is in uh, Abu Dhabi. So uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> thanks to you guys. Um, and uh, the, uh, the reality is that, uh, you know, we, Today, about 54% of our deal flow is in Israel and about 46% outside of Israel. So we're approaching parity between Israeli deals and external deals, which I think is a good thing. So on the one hand, if you're seeking a great source of Israeli deals, please come to ArcRoute. But we're offering deals elsewhere. So as you mentioned in your very kind introductory comments, we were investors in jump bikes. People have seen those red bikes bought by Uber. We were investors in Beyond Meat, which was one of the best IPOs really of the last decade before it went public. Uh, you know, and, and these are, we were investors up in a Canadian company called Wave. It was bought by H&R Block for 440 million. And we're continuing to make, uh, we just led a, a big round uh, at a, a very another interesting food tech company. I can't say it actually now because they're about to, uh, announce it soon, so I can't. I've got to watch my tongue. But the reality is that we're uh, about half-half in terms of deals in Israel and outside of Israel. Those outside of Israel are by and large U.S. deals, although we have some deals in China and Europe. And we're really seeking to be a global platform. And as we get bigger, we'll do more and more outside of Israel. So you talked about how you've been quietly doing business a little bit in the Gulf, even prior to the normalization of relations in Israel. But what, you know, you were one of the first, I think you were the first Israeli businessman to sign an MOU with an Emirati firm after the Abraham Accords. What has surprised you about the opportunities and the entrepreneurial spirit that exists in the Gulf? And what type of opportunities do you see for uh, commercial collaboration between Israel and the UAE going forward? I, I and think Bahrain, the, for that matter. The opportunities are, are, are great. First of all, there was a question there about Bahrain as well as the UAE, because the UAE has got a uh, you know, GDP of about uh, more than 10x that of Bahrain. They get lost sometimes. But I, I think there's great opportunity in Bahrain. Uh, there are a whole series, I think it's now 12 weekly flights going to go into Bahrain from Israel. So we don't want to leave them out of the equation. And we're very committed to that. Uh, our regional office for the GCC, if you will, will be in Abu Dhabi, but we'll probably be, build, be building uh, on, in long run, you know, sort of satellites in other, other cities and other regions there as we grow it. Look, the opportunity is uh, essentially for three different things. It's for uh, investment, okay, whereby uh, both Israelis are going to be investing there, and we're getting ready to announce our first investment in a UAE company, which we're very excited about. Um, people from the region are going to be investing in Israel. And we've got, that's, you know, we just announced a $100 million uh, uh, framework investment deal with the uh, Al Nabuda group. Um, that's number one, is a tremendous sort of bilateral investment. Number two is going to be uh, creating joint ventures, whereby it's not just about taking Israeli products and moving them into the Gulf or uh, Gulf products and moving them to Israel, but it's going to be about creating new things together. I was sitting on a porch uh, outdoors last week 
with a group of 20 and 30 something sort of next gen Emirati business people who were the sons of, you know, uh, and one of them pointed to this huge building uh, in the distance and said, that's my dad's building. And he says, I wanna build something bigger. And I said, well, where's the building gonna be? He goes, I don't wanna build a building. I wanna build a startup. And these guys were all interested in AI and food tech and mobility and logistics. And they were completely up to speed with what's going on in both Israel and in Silicon Valley. And I think that when you put these two together, it's gonna to be you know, fireworks. The third area, which we're looking at, is actually doing research and development over there because there are generous government benefits uh, and it's easier in some cases to actually recruit people from abroad to come live in the Emirates as expats because today, you know, let's face it, in Israel, we're growing our ecosystem, but we're short at the moment about 20,000 engineers for our, our companies. And that gap is, is growing. So we, you know, we really need to do R&D everywhere. We've got teams working in, you know, the Ukraine and in uh, uh, Hong Kong. People are working for Israeli companies. They're becoming sort of like baby multinationals. And I am certain that there's going to be a lot of really interesting R&D done in that area too. So the opportunities are huge. Uh, it's going to be broad. It's going to be everything from property technology to clean energy, to logistics, to ag tech, to food tech, because they're really into food security, cybersecurity, oil and gas, you name it. Okay, there's gonna be a lot going on. And uh, I, I, I think we haven't even seen the, the, the beginning of this. Yeah, just to echo that, you know, we obviously have some clients in the region on, on the Skybridge side, and we have friends in the region in Saudi and the UAE and Bahrain, but we were blown away as we dove deeper into that ecosystem as a result of SALT about the entrepreneurial vigor that, that exists among the next generation, especially uh, in the UAE and in the region as a whole. So it's it's very exciting time. So we have another audience question about how do you source deals for the platform, especially ones that are highly competitive? How do you get into those deals and how do you source them? Well, so first of all, we source them by and large through our network of investors, because once people are investors on the platform, they trust us, they see how we work and they wanna bring us into the deals they're looking at. They want our opinion, okay? And we, we're quite you know happy to share that. So that's probably our, our, uh, our biggest source. Perhaps our best source of deal flow is from our entrepreneurial core, right? The CEOs of our companies, the 200 plus, they bring their friends because they work with us. Because let's face it, today, the way you get into a highly competitive deal is not to outbid somebody. That's so, you know, last century, okay? Uh, today, the way you get into a good deal is by outbidding somebody on the value that you can add, okay? In other words, you've gotta be able to convince the smart entrepreneur, the smart CEO, that you're not just gonna write them a, a check and, and be there in the future to write more checks, which is a big part of the of this job to continue to sustain these companies going forward, but that you can provide strategic introductions to partners, that you can help recruit, you know, key members of his management team, that you can get them, you know, in the media, that you can introduce them to other investors. I mean, this is really, you know, what this is about. It's not like about picking a public stock, right? We're not, we're not deal pickers. 
Okay, we are company builders. And we bring to this a remarkable amount of added value because of the crowd. Because we have 60,000 people on our platform and hundreds of family offices and uh, multinationals and whatnot, we're able to go to you know, an entrepreneur, whether it's in uh, you know, Abu Dhabi or, or in Israel or even in Silicon Valley and say, how would you like this international network to come work with you? And that becomes usually a very compelling uh, part of the value proposition. We urge them to call our other CEOs and ask, what's it like working with these guys? You know, do they really deliver? And uh, smart entrepreneurs do their diligence on the investor the way that investors do their diligence on the company. And that's how you get into the good deals. So before we let you go, I want to finish on another follow-up question about your pandemic innovation fund and about the pandemic in general. So as, as some of you may have seen, we put out a press release yesterday. We're going to be doing a series of SALT talks, partnering with our crowd, which we're very excited about, talking about all the innovation that's taking place as a result of the pandemic, whether it be new trends that are emerging or the acceleration of existing trends. And one of the interesting things I think about your pandemic innovation fund, and it's not just first derivative effects of the pandemic. It's not just, okay, we're gonna have remote work. So we're gonna invest in Zoom and Skype and Microsoft Teams. There's a lot of second and third derivative investments in that fund that I think are fascinating. Could you talk about some of those second or third derivative effects and the investments that you're making as a result of those effects? Sure, so look, I, I think that, um, you know, when you start looking at, uh, for example, food tech, which you might not think that food tech has much to do, you know, with the whole pandemic story. But as you note, by the way, uh, during the uh, pandemic, there were terrible breakouts that happened in, um, yeah, there's dog. <laughs> That's part of the pandemic innovation series. Yeah, you right. Is a dog suppression. barking in the background. A, yeah, a, a bark suppression algorithm, <laughs> which we can sell to, uh, uh, <laughs> I need the I need the bark suppression algorithm, and don't worry about it. Pe people uh, appreciate the dog barking in the background. Now that's it's it's part. It's actually the most effective security system known to man or dog. Absolutely. Um, but in any event, the uh, uh, you know there were a lot of uh, meatpacking companies that really got you know terribly whacked, and there were all kinds of issues about food security as a result of the pandemic. People went attacking these food shelves. And so, you know, uh, there are companies where we have money invested like Ripple, uh, which is not the cryptocurrency, but the, <laughs> uh, the plant-based milk, okay? Where all of a sudden their sales started to take off because of the fact that they have a long shelf life and people didn't wanna to have to go keep running back to the market. And they said, wait, this stuff lasts for a month or even longer, you know, on my refrigerator, I don't, I'm gonna get that. We have another company called Tovala, okay, which uh, basically makes a smart oven that takes a, a prepackaged uh, piece of food, which is shipped to you. It's, it's, by the way, fresh, and it cooks it for you. Their sales went through the roof, okay, as a result of the pandemic. Um, we have a company called Trellis, which helps big food companies do optimization of their supply chain so that they can save 15% you know, uh, on, and, and so I'm just drilling down here in a very, I'll give you another one. We have a company called Tevel, which uses drones to pick fruits. And, uh, you know, and it turns out that there's been tremendous shortages of farmhands, okay? And for, you know, foreign workers during the pandemic to get 
you know, so just fruits rotting on the trees. So these drones do that. So there's four examples in just one narrow segment of companies that most people would not think of as having uh, uh, been impacted by the pandemic. So, you know, this new normal we're living in, we haven't even begun to understand how deeply reality is changing. Okay. And, you know, we all think, we all understand Zoom now, and we're amazed that Zoom's, you know, market cap keeps on seesawing with uh, IBM. Okay. But it's, you know, there's a lot more beyond Zoom. I'll, I'll give you one more example in the medical area, which is that we had a, a pandemic innovation conference online where we had the head of Johns Hopkins Health on. And he predicted that 30% of hospital visits are simply going to move to telemedicine. And then we had another uh, webinar with the head of one of Israel's leading hospitals, Sheba Innovation Group. I asked him what he thought of that prediction. So it's pretty astounding when you think about 30% of hospital procedures are now, or visits are now going to go online. Okay, that's a huge market opportunity. And he said, way underestimated. Try 70%. So you look and you start thinking, wait, has the, the smart investor realized how big this shift disruption is going to be in the delivery of uh, medical services, of digital health, of telemedicine. And I don't think most people have, have really thought this through yet. And uh, that's why you need things like our Pandemic Innovation Fund, which are focused in on that. Well, John, thanks so much for joining us. Again, we're so excited to do the SALT Talk series in partnership with our crowd. It's a fascinating platform, and we share so many of the same values in terms of democratizing access to alternative investments and, and also plenty of other values as well. But thanks so much for joining us this morning. Anthony, you have a final word for Jonathan? No, listen, we're, uh, we got to get back together. That's what I'm looking, looking for. Okay, to... I'm looking for some one-on-ones, uh, -on face-to-face. That's what I'm looking for. And some hugs. I like. Yeah, I like yeah. I'm. I'm. Um, I'm. You know. I. I got to tell you. You know. There's a guy in his basement. He's beating up on the guy that's not in his basement. And I'm in my basement too, John. You know. So we're, <laughs> we're, we're sitting here right now. But I mean, maybe we're the good. basement is. After all, maybe the basement is the best strategy. After all, I don't know. We'll have to see. <laughs> Long basement. Right, well, you hey, be well. A lot. A lot of great companies set up in basements and garages. That's for sure. Amen. All right. Well, you be well, Jonathan. Yeah, be thanks well. again Thank for you joining guys. us. See you Bye -bye. soon.